Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. Today, we hear firsthand about the devastating effect COVID-19 is having on Irish nursing homes and look at what type of future these settings will have in years to come. We've seen the problems across the developed world in nursing homes. Um, for Our model into the future was to build lots of modern new nursing homes, all single rooms, very high quality. Maybe that's not the right approach. Um, maybe we need to um, enable people to stay at home for much longer if possible. And then instead of having big, massive 150 bed nursing homes, maybe have smaller communities like we've done in the disability sector. So there's a lot to think about after this. From early on in the fight against the coronavirus outbreak, the government's most challenging issue has been limiting the spread of infection among Ireland's residential care homes. It has been no secret that how this has and continues to be handled will in years to come be one of the lead stories in how we remember the virus on this island. In Ireland, over 840 people have lost their lives to the virus while living in residential care facilities. This represents over 60% of all COVID-19 related deaths around the country. One of those to tragically pass away was Rose Hegarty, an 84-year-old resident of St Mary's Hospital in Phoenix Park, Dublin. Rose lost her life to the virus after contracting it in the HSE-run nursing home, which caters for 150 residents and has been struck with 24 fatalities so far. I speak to Rose's niece Jane Carrigan about her family's experience of losing a loved one to COVID-19 and what needs to be done to stop further preventable deaths in Irish care facilities. Later in the podcast I also speak to Professor Jared Quinn, who is one of Europe's leading authorities on international and comparative disability law and policy. Jared discusses why he feels that in a post-COVID society, nursing homes must completely cease to exist and provision should be put in favour of community-based care settings for the elderly. First though, here is my conversation with Jane Carrigan about her Aunt Rose, who sadly lost her life to COVID-19 on the 27th of April. When coronavirus became an increasing concern at the beginning of March, how worried would you have been about the ability of St Mary's at keeping the virus at bay, knowing what you do know from visiting the hospital before? So it's interesting you say the beginning of March. So we would have been talking, myself and my aunt, who was a resident in, in the nursing home, would have been talking about the virus much earlier than that um, so it had become a news story really since the start of the year and I remember my aunt had a medical appointment she would have had to travel to another hospital on February 13th and we had been talking would it be cancelled would it be safe to go to the hospital so really talk of the virus took place much earlier my aunt Rosie was very conscious of the news she watched the news mm. and she read newspapers so 
she was fully cognizant of the threat of the virus and also because of her own health condition, she knew um, uh, that she had to be uh, particularly careful. Um, I suppose St Mary's is there's a hospital part of St Mary's and there's also a nursing home part. And my aunt was in the nursing home uh, part of St Mary's from September last year. And she was really happy there. It had given her this new lease of life. She had access to health professionals, that, like a social worker, an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist, who had really transformative effects. And she had a lot of medical issues because she, her mobility had, had, um, had really deteriorated. So she was in a wheelchair, but she loved the activities. Mm. So there were some issues, obviously, when you, you become part of an institution, you know, you might have issues about certain things, but she was actually really happy. When you went into St. Mary's, the nursing home part, there were sanitizers all along the corridor. This is from the moment I first entered the building in September, so pre-coronavirus. Mm. Um, but having said all that, we watched the news. We saw what was happening in Spain initially. I think there was also a nursing home in Washington. Um, in America, and that nursing homes seem to be the worst hit, or certainly the numbers um, of deaths that were emerging from from nursing homes was pretty shocking worldwide. But I suppose St Mary's is a HSE-run facility, and I'm not sure actually if that makes any difference or not. But we would have hoped that preparations were being made, like the preparations that we were hearing about um that the community will, will be doing, so the hand washing and the etiquette and all these things that we could do to minimise risk. We thought there would be planning in nursing home settings because all the evidence seems to suggest from early March that nursing homes were going to be particularly vulnerable. And were any reassurances given to those residents at the time that extra precautions were being made? Do you know, was it discussed within the centre itself? I don't. I don't know if it was discussed. I don't know if it was discussed at that level. I know my aunt, um, because she was in a wheelchair, she was very conscious about hand washing, but she would have found it very, she would have needed help getting out of bed, for instance. So I know she had said she'd asked for a sanitizer and that was given to her, so that was beside her bed. But I don't know if there are any discussions at that level of what was happening. And can you speak to me then about initially finding out that she had actually contracted the virus. How much of a hold had the virus had on the community within the centre itself at that stage? Yeah, so um, my aunt began to display symptoms on April 19th and she died then eight days later on April 27th. Uh, so she developed symptoms on a on a Sunday. Um, and I, sh- I should say that we, I mean, we're just living in dread when you're, you have loved ones in a care setting and you can't see them, you can't physically see them. You just feel so perilous, what's happening. Mm. Um, and really we were following the news and what was going on. So on March 29th, we were contacted by St. Mary to say there was a case in the facility. And you know, your heart just sinks because you're thinking, is this it? Um, but you're still hoping, you know, um, hoping that you know maybe it wouldn't um, spread um, and we debated whether to tell my aunt because she, she was doing everything she could mm. she, she had the sanitizer she wasn't going for the communal dinner she stopped that at early March um, to minimise risk so the food was being delivered to her 
And so we decided we wouldn't tell her, but she rang us the next day um, to let us know that there was a case in the facility. And my my aunt was really observant. She she was by, um, her room had a lovely uh, big window and she would notice any increased activity and she obviously asked someone what's going on. Um, and she was able to tell us that the virus was in, an, uh, the case was in another ward, uh, was the far end of the building. So, you know, in your mind, you're going through, well, maybe if it, um, and of course, you can't, I couldn't, couldn't, felt I couldn't say this to my aunt, but I, all the time thinking, if she gets through seven days without symptoms or 14 days, you're, you're kind of counting down time, if you like. Mm. And uh, on April 5th, like a week later, we got the news that um, there was a case in the ward. And again, you start this awful countdown. Well, if she gets through seven days or 14 days, and Easter happened, and my aunt, you know, was fine. Um, and it was really then on the, the weekend of the 19th of April that she displayed symptoms and, and got very ill very quickly. They suspected COVID-19 from the outset. She had a cough, but uh, she was tested on, it was April 25th, uh, um, it was a sorry. She was tested on the Monday, the twentieth. Um, that was the week where they began to test everyone in, in St Mary's, including staff. And we got the results on the Saturday, so two days before she died, to confirm that she had the virus. But it's so um, strange, really, because at one level you're, you're watching someone you love uh, dying. But you're hoping it's not a virus. Somehow the virus makes it worse, that you're cheated of time. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it, it, um, you know, it didn't feel like a normal um, experience. Mm. Because you're outside a window looking in and trying to say things um, that really should be best said when you're sitting beside someone, you're holding someone's hand. In recent days we've also heard that the whistleblower at the centre has voiced concerns that they weren't sufficiently prepared for the outbreak how does that news make you feel then knowing that this probably should have been preventable I think um, obviously that's hard that is hard to hear that but I also think that staff member is a very brave person and is um, raising valuable questions that need to be answered. And it doesn't take away maybe some of the achievements that Ireland has made in tackling the virus. But I think the numbers um, of deaths in nursing homes in Ireland in general is shocking. But also St Mary's was one of the worst hit. Um, 24 people uh, confirmed dead from COVID-19. That's uh, exceptionally high. how come some nursing homes seem to be more badly affected than others? Or what is that the case? I mean, these are all questions. And I think the fact that someone has come forward, a whistleblower has come forward, and that there is now an investigation is a good thing. Because ultimately, hope it will prevent these kind of issues emerging in, in the future. I think all the evidence suggested that it was highly likely a case would appear in a nursing home. And because that was the nature of the virus, it was in the, the community, and nursing homes are part of this wider community. But I think it raised a lot of questions about how we control infection and what we can do. And I suppose when I say we, I suppose 
what can be done really to try and prevent the spread of infection. The narrative really about nursing homes, uh, certainly when I saw it in Italy and Spain, it's almost like once it got in, it couldn't be prevented. We know we can do things to minimise infection in certain settings. So what lessons can be learned from what happened in order to prevent, I suppose, mistakes being made in the future? I'm really conscious, uh, a lot of reports are suggesting there might be a second wave. And if there is, uh, what are the protections for the people who are in a care setting and who may not have a voice, really? My aunt took every precaution to protect herself, but it wasn't uh, enough because obviously there's some things you can't control. And that's access to PPE, it's testing, it's staffing levels, it's all those things. And I suppose there's uh, uh, the, the questions we, we would have. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Professor Jared Quinn is former director of the Centre of Disability Law and Policy at NUI Galway and holds the Wallenberg Chair in the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights in Sweden. I started off by asking him to give us an overview of the current state of affairs for Irish nursing home facilities currently battling COVID-19. Well, I think it's a global phenomenon. It's not confined to Ireland. And in France, for example, the official estimate is that about a quarter of all COVID-related deaths are taking place in nursing homes. There's a little bit of a disagreement about how to compile the stats in a comparative basis worldwide, but most people agree, nevertheless, these problems, notwithstanding that um, disproportionate number of COVID deaths are happening in long-term care institutions. You just mentioned France there as well. By European standards, what would an average nursing home look like? And taking that into account as well, are facilities here in Ireland on par with that? Well, the thing to remember is that um, in the area of aged care, as distinct from disability, the medical model tends to be predominant, whereas over the last 20, 30 years, that's been displaced in the, um, in the disability context. And if you're looking at purely internally at the medical model and how it functions, I think you'd probably have to say that the Irish system ranks fairly well. Uh, and our contribution is by no means a critique of the professionalism or the integrity of the people working in the sector. It's more a reflection on what's the line of travel for public policy, where should we be going into the future, and just as importantly, how we should um, reprioritize funding strategies into the future. And the COVID epidemic happens to be something that 
really pushes that to the surface. But it's been there nonetheless under the surface for quite a few years. And knowing that then, where were the main failings around Ireland's ability to keep this out of nursing homes in comparison to other places? I know you were saying it is a global <coughs> epidemic in care homes, but it really seems to have hit Ireland particularly badly. Well, keeping people out of institutions is a complex task. It's not easy. It's not straightforward. Um a lot of countries have run into problems in implementation. For example, although there's a lot of deaths happening in care homes in Sweden at the moment, they do have very good policies on the books to try and keep people out of institutions. But the problem they've run into is not so much money. It's more isolation and loneliness and how you counteract that to maintain people's health status. But there's a lot of knowledge now been generated worldwide on, on what the problematics are. And I think it's time to, to reorient our public policy to face those problems honestly and try and deal with them. Because, you know, keeping people out of institutions keeps them alive, basically. In your Irish Times piece, you'd mentioned that Leo Bradker had speculated that nursing home care in future might need to move more in line with disability care. How do those yeah. settings usually differ? Uh, the big difference, I think, is that in the disability context, a social model tends to predominate, whereas in the aged care context, the medical model seems to predominate. That's not to say that the medical model doesn't have a place, but it should probably not be front and centre in rethinking aged, aged care into the future. Uh, I think that's the big difference. And the way it shows is that maybe about 11 years ago, the government here in this country adopted the HSE report ending all congregated settings. That's what it's actually called. And it states explicitly that um, everybody with a disability, regardless of the type of disability or the severity of the disability, has an expectation and a right to live in the community with adequate supports. Hand on heart, has that worked out perfectly? Absolutely not but at least the policy setting is in the right direction. Whereas in the um, aged care context, it seems to be the case that the medical model predominates, which is that the most appropriate venue to, quote-unquote, treat people is in a nursing home. Is there anything that stands out of why these facilities still aren't fit for purpose for the residents of it, aside from, obviously, the contagion aspect that can happen if there is an infectious disease? Yeah, well, I would emphasize that the, the Irish setting is... Um, is not all bad, and there's a lot of really good people functioning within it, but it's more a case of standing back and using the COVID as, as an occasion to reflect on, is this really the future direction we want public policy to follow? And around the world, there are murmurings now of a big change. Um, I we think we mentioned the, the White House um, conference on elderly care about five years ago, with a dramatic shift in reconceptualizing long-term care, not in medical terms, but more in terms of reinvestment in the community. Um, there is ongoing at present a drafting process to draft a UN treaty on the rights of older people. And two issues, well, three issues are going to be front and center. One is autonomy and decision-making capacity of older people to plot their own course so to speak, um, community living, the value of home and keeping people in home, which actually isn't primarily about bricks and mortar. It's about community connectedness and then other issues like palliative care 
are actually um, front and centre as well. On the first issue then, how big of a problem is it in Ireland around organising and vetting who should be in care homes and who, who shouldn't? Obviously, some patients greatly benefit by being in nursing homes and care homes similarly, but others wouldn't necessarily effectively do so. I'd be careful about how I'd frame that because going back to the ending congregated settings report of 2011, the, the report does not distinguish between those with, um, let's say, high-intensity care needs and those without, and applies the right to community living across the board. So there's a very interesting disconnect between that policy approach and then the policy approach in elder care, whereby people will say the first default or maybe the last default ought to be institutionalization. That's what's been recaught right around the world. Um, so it's... Um, unfortunately, um, an appropriate moment in time to, to really think this through. What does a successful scenario look like for community living? Do we need an increase in numbers that are working in the field or is it still viable to do it with the same infrastructure we have now? Well, do bear in mind that the costs of institutionalisation are quite enormous, uh, both uh, direct as well as hidden to the taxpayer, I might add. Um, do also bear in mind that it's estimated that 76% of the cost of dementia is institutionalization. And a lot of people with um, early stage and ongoing dementia are institutionalized. Um, I think the problematics are what's the kind of support mechanism you put in place. And it's not going to be something that simply maintains a person um, because that's the easy bit. The hard bit is how you retain their connections in the community, the quality of their social capital, just to use some jargon, because that's what really maintains a healthy sense of self in as much as independence as possible, uh, to maintain independence for as long as possible. Um, The other variable, of course, is carers and how they're supported or not, as the case may be. And right around the world, there's a growing realisation that an investment in cares is something that um, pays handsome dividends to the taxpayer, let's put it that way. It's cost-effective. And some of our pension rules will probably have to be changed because if you're a woman, and it's typically a woman, who takes time out in your 40s to care for an ailing parent for, let's say, 10 years, 15 years, you're quite disadvantaged later on when it comes to pension entitlements. So that probably has to change. A thing to be avoided is precarious employment, because in some countries they put in place very good supports to enable people to continue living in their own homes, but they import labour from the third world, let's say. Uh, Terms and conditions of employment are not great. There's no career advancement. Added to that, the person who does the supports is from out of culture, if you know what I mean. And that's not really ideal for an older person. Obviously, nursing homes have been a widely debated topic in the last couple of weeks. But in previous years, have we seen any major structural or policy changes here in Ireland? And do you envision this actually happening in the next few years, obviously dependent on who is in government? Uh, I just uh, have a little flashback to, do you remember the um, incident in County Mayo? I can't remember the institution's name now. RTE did an expose on it, and um, it was it, what it brought to light was um, exploitation and abuse within the institution. Um, and funnily enough, most people react 
responded to that on the basis of ha we can regulate these places better we can police these places better um but slowly and over time people have come to the realization no um once you institutionalize someone you are magnifying certain risks and probably the better option is to shut them down so i think similarly with respect to the debate of covid and nursing homes one part of the debate is highly technocratic how can we put in place um, measures to mitigate the risk um, ppe equipment um, you know ample space for distancing and so forth and i think that's a uh, a laudable short-term response, a very humane one, but it's not really the long-term prospect. That was episode 27 of Viral COVID-19. I'd like to thank Professor Jared Quinn, and in particular thank Jane Carrigan for sharing with me the difficult story of losing her Aunt Rose to COVID-19 last month. We will be back on Tuesday with more news and interviews from around the country as Ireland continues its battle against the pandemic. I'm Ian Doyle. I'll talk to you then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.